Okay, so we're uh, looking this evening at 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it's quite a long reading, so bear with me, but it's exciting. 2 Samuel chapter 7, page 310 in the Church Bibles. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, David said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I was brought the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod, wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever. Before me, your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, You have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant, and this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, Sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, Sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. And there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, 
the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Amen. Well, good evening above bar. It is very good to be with you this evening. My name is Tom Wedrell. And uh, as Nicola said in her introduction, uh, I was on the staff team here and up until about two years ago. Uh, and I'm now the assistant pastor at a church called Kennet Valley Free Church in Reading. Um, but it is really special for us to be here this evening. And uh, we, we love you and we pray for you often. And uh, it is a joy for me to come and open God's word for us this evening. This is perhaps one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament, and so I'm excited uh, to, to come and to, to show God to us as we come to his words. Let me pray for us. Lord God, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and we praise you and we humble ourselves before you this evening. And Lord, we pray, set our sights upon you, that our perspective would be shaped by you and all of your glorious promises. Come and be with us, Lord. Let the heat not distract us, but let our hearts be hungry, hungry for your presence and hungry for your word. Be here, Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, whether or not you are familiar with the Bible, uh, there is something important to keep in mind about God as we read, and that is that he is a covenant-making God. What do we mean by that? That means that God repeatedly throughout the Bible makes promises to his people, and his people are those who are committed to him. And God gives these promises so that God's people can set the perspective of their lives and the perspective of their future by what he has promised. One of the earliest and perhaps most significant uh, of these promises happened a long time before King David was on the throne. Uh, God intervened in the life of a man named Abraham. And God made Abraham a promise. He said that he's going to make Abraham into a great nation and that he is going to give them a place to live. And that through Abraham, he is going to bless all the peoples of the earth. 
And God takes Abraham and he, he points to the sky and he says, look up at the sky, at these countless stars. The number of your descendants is going to be like the stars. And so from then on, God's promise was to shape Abraham's perspective of the whole world. And as this nation grew, God then went on and made other covenants with his people through Moses. And what you see in the Bible story throughout the Old Testament is that life is best when God's promises are directing their lives. Now, sometimes God's people lose a sense of their perspective, often being drawn in by the things in the world that are considered impressive. And so stories about who God is and his promises quite often get forgotten. And I think if we're honest, it is easy to lose perspective. It's easy to lose perspective. Even with this world around us that's meant to point us to God, we often lose perspective. And we saw this uh, this week in the news, as the news had us looking up to the, sc- to the stars, uh, the new photos that were released from the James Webb Space Telescope were released. I don't know if you got to see those. They are awesome. Photos that were captured, uh, kind of the, the far reaches of the universe with more color and detail than ever before. And it is absolutely magnificent. You can see it on the screen. Now, that photo that you can see is apparently, it covers a patch of sky that were you to hold out a grain of rice in your hand, it would approximately cover kind of that size of the sky. And that is just that picture. Is that not just awesome? It is humbling. But yet, at the press release of these photos, President Biden made these comments. He said, these images are going to remind the world that America can do big things and remind the American people, especially our children, that there's nothing beyond our capacity. He goes on to say, we can see possibilities no one has ever seen before. We can go places no one has ever gone before. Here's President Biden stood before the kind of clearest vista of the vast, wondrous universe. And his response is to praise the greatness of the capabilities of the American people and human possibilities, rather than the greatness of the one who, at the beginning of Genesis, we just says, made the stars. To recognize that there is a God behind all of this. Now, these photos are an enormous achievement. I think the thing is like the size of a tennis court. They've launched into space. It is impressive. But didn't there feel, if you listen to it, wasn't there a sense of a loss of perspective and wonder at these images? Imagine if Abraham this week got to see those photos. But it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to lose perspective. But when this happens, when we lose perspective, which we do, God is gracious. And he has given us his promises within his word So that rather than going off on our own way, we have his promises to to orientate our whole lives, to set the perspective by which we live, and to help us see what he is doing in our world. And this is what God is doing here in this this play of two acts. This chapter, chapter 7, you kind of got two acts that are happening. First, God gives David some fresh perspective by making a covenant with him. And the second act, we get David's humble response. So act one opens up and David is is sat in his new palace 
Maybe he's just kind of finished a really nice big meal and he's sat around the table with Nathan, God's prophet, and they're just kind of, you know, going over all the events that have happened recently where they've successfully captured Jerusalem, where they've successfully defeated their nation's enemies, and they've made Jerusalem the religious capital by bringing in the Ark of the Covenant. Life is good. But as happens when you're kind of sat around chatting with mates over food, you tend to try and put the world to rights. And David reflects to Nathan, here I am living in this house of cedar while the ark of of God remains in a tent. And it seems from the the story that Nathan knows what David is going to say and he's on board right away. It makes total logical sense that God should have a house that reflects his grandeur. And so Nathan says, go for it. Go, go do what you're going to do, David. But we see later that night, God speaks to Nathan with a message for David, which is, are you the one that's going to build me a house to dwell in? Verse five. In other words, David, you've lost perspective. And we see that in these first seven verses. David, you've lost your perspective it's not that God is, is worried that David is going to build him a house, you know, like a, a two-up, two-down kind of house. House in verse 2 refers to David's palace, whereas house in verses 5, 6, and 7 refer to a temple. David wants to build God a temple. David is conscious that uh, of, the, of his kind of phenomenal house, his palace, when God's presence is essentially in a flat-pack tent And so he wants to build God a permanent house, a temple for his God. And God responds in verses five to seven so kindly to David. And he highlights that he is missing something. Firstly, he's missing the fact that God never actually asked him to build him a temple. But also the thing that he's missing, the reason why God hasn't asked him to build a temple yet is because God's priority has been to be amongst his people to be able to move where his people are going. That is who God is revealing himself to be. If his people are sleeping rough, he is sleeping rough. If they're facing challenges or changes, God is with them in the thick of it. Now later in the Bible story, because people lost this perspective, they were surprised when God shows up in Jesus in the flesh who had come into this turbulent and messy world where his people are. It matters when we lose perspective of who God is and his promises. So, so what is it that, how is it that David has got things so wrong? Well, I think, I think, just to defend David just a little bit, if that's okay, on the surface, it's not an entirely wrong suggestion. In fact, In the story, God's king and God's prophet both are kind of, you know, thumbs up, on board, this is a a good idea. Because it's a very logical and honorable suggestion. God is worthy of the most impressive temple. But maybe, maybe they are beginning to be more influenced by their setting than God's purposes I'm sure for David and Nathan within the palace, it's a pretty, you know, cushy place for them to have their digs, and perhaps they're getting, getting used to it. And so their perspective on things have been influenced by perhaps what the world sees as impressive or even right. You can see this uh, in that they don't seek God's presence for guidance. 
they make the decision from the heights of the palace, sat around their table, full bellies. That's where they make their decision. And so for us, God's people today, where do we have this, find that we have a loss of, of perspective within our lives? Where perhaps you and I try and construct things because we believe that perhaps we need to be impressive for God or God needs impressive things from us. As a church, that can be in, you know, an impressive building, it can be impressive ministries, impressive vision statements. Individually, we can construct impressive spiritual appearances, whether that's on our social media, which is much easier to curate, or, or face-to-face in our relationships. Like David, I think in part that can come from, a, a, I guess, a logical or an honorable place. We, we want God to look good. We want it to look like our church is, is thriving and that God is doing great things. But this can happen. We can lose this sense of perspective when we're focused on perhaps what the world thinks is impressive rather than on the promises and presence of God. Had Nathan and David, you know, after their, um, I don't know, cheese board or whatever they had in those days, if after that they'd gone to God's tabernacle, things might have gone a bit differently. If they'd entered into God's tabernacle surrounded by who God is, they'd have remembered that God didn't need them to do anything to make him impressive. Any polished constructions are going to be far less impressive than who God is and the reality of what he is doing with his people. Yes, he's in a tent. He's the God in a tent. But he is there comforting his people. He is there loving those who are broken. He is there with those who are struggling to leave their lives of slavery in Egypt behind. That is impressive. And God is so gracious to us when we lose our way. Do you see here, this isn't God scolding David. No, God decides, I'm gonna give you a new promise to reveal the greater things that I'm gonna do, David. Now, this challenge for David was still probably painful. He's had to scrap his big idea to give God a big temple. And perhaps if he'd started the construction, it would have been even more painful for him. But God steps in, and what God is going to build in its place is going to leave David utterly, utterly lost for words. This is what God now lays before Nathan. This is God's perspective, verses 8 to 17. God says, tell David, verse 8, my intention has never been for you to build a house for me. I'm going to be the one who builds a house for you. Now, when uh, plans of a building are being drawn up, often a perspective drawing like what's on the screen can be sketched out so that you can see what is, in reality, the the building is going to look like. And it seems that kind of in a way, this is what God is doing for David here in, in these nine verses, where house had first meant palace and then temple. God lays out the fact that now he's going to build a house for David, but a house which is a dynasty. Just like we might talk about the British monarchy as the the house of Windsor. But it is greater than anything that they have been dreaming up around the table. 
So in these passages, verses uh, 8 to 11, we see God first showing David the foundations and the plans that he's already been laying. And then in verses 12 to 17, he lays out the greatness of what he is going to build. This is the kind of full-scale plan. So how has God already been laying a foundation in David's life? Well, you can see it happening every step of the way. Verse 8, God says, I took you from the pasture. I took you, David, from the pasture, from the hills of being a shepherd to being a king. Then I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies, and now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. David, you see, I have been lining everything up, and this is not the kind of house that you can build, David. This is a house, a dynasty, that only I can establish. So the the news for David here is that it's going to be bigger than him. God does promise that he's going to make uh, his name great. But you kind of have this sense here that God is saying, David, have you wondered why I'm going to make your name great? Why I've done all this for you? Well, you see it right beneath. I've done this because I want to create a home for my people, Israel. The kingdom I'm building, it's going to be a home where my people belong, where they won't be moved on or oppressed by their enemies. David, I want to give my people a permanent home where they can finally rest. That's what I've been getting ready. But David, even now, it's going to extend even further, not just the new, but your lifetime. We read, when you've died, I'm going to raise up your offspring. This is verse 12. I'm going to raise up your offspring. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish his house forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now this is going to be partly fulfilled in the life of David's son, Solomon, who is going to build him a house, a temple in the heart of Israel. But Solomon is not going to be it. Many more kings are going to come. And at times, it is going to look bleak, and it's going to look unimpressive. And if you've read the rest of the Old Testament, you're like, yeah, no, pretty bleak, pretty unimpressive at times. I wonder if you've ever watched uh, Grand Designs, um, where people kind of set out to build rather ambitious modern homes. One of my favorite things about watching Grand Designs is the presenter, Kevin McLeod, uh, because he has an exceptional poker face. He'll arrive on the site of this house uh, that's maybe 10 years into a two-year project. The foundations have been dug, but there's been you know, heavy rain and a lack of finances, and so it's basically one giant pond. And Kevin will kind of, he'll, he'll interview the couple who've sunk all their life savings into this building, who still believe that it's, it's going to get finished. And Kevin just, he nods, but you know. And one of the joys of watching it is you know he's thinking, not in a million years is that going to happen. Not in a million years. And you can imagine those at the end of the Old Testament, God's people feeling the same way who after this promise in 2 Samuel 7 have seen king after king after king that have just been, well, a mixed bag, to be frank, have all come from David's line, but they've been taken into exile. And just at the end of the Old Testament, as it comes to a close, they're thinking, where is this kingdom of safety and stability that God has promised? Have his promises failed? But yet, look at these promises. Look at the promises that God is making here because it doesn't read like a potential building project. It reads 
as an inevitability. This is not something God is putting forward for planning permission to David. This kingdom is an inevitability of our world. The progress of this kingdom will persist through any challenges and speed bumps until it is finally and fully established. I'm going to run through just a few things here that we see as to why it's an inevitability. Look at verse, uh, 12, uh, verses 12 and 13. Death won't stop this kingdom coming. You see here, when David has been laid to rest, God is going to raise up his offspring. And even those kings that are going to come after will fall, but God will provide one king who is going to be king forever. And on paper, that makes zero sense. God is going to uh, give this king, this eternal king, someone who is also flesh and blood. That would appear an unscalable object in this building project. And yet a thousand years later, when Jesus is challenged by the Jews about his authority in John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus is speaking about his own body. Death will have no hold over the ultimate king. And friends, we live on this side of that event. And if you're familiar with the Bible, if you're familiar with the gospel, we know that to be true intellectually. But time and again, God's kingdom is going to look and feel defeated. We are going to feel defeated. But the king of the unstoppable kingdom has been raised and his kingdom is advancing. Death has had its chance to stop the kingdom and it couldn't. Death cannot stop this kingdom coming. Secondly, sin won't stop this kingdom from coming. Verses 14 to 15. Sin has been the undoing of humanity since the very beginning. In the very beginning, God made us in his image, which is a, a, the sense of we were royal representatives made to, to reign over and rule over the earth. And yet two pages in, all those hopes are dashed because of sin. And God also knows now, as he's making this promise to David, that it's going to be a painful road because even the Old Testament kings of David's line are not going to be shining examples very few of them even passed the bar to be considered good kings. But because God cares about his kingdom, he's going to discipline those kings, we read here, and he is not going to pull the plug on his promises. Because there's going to be a king who's going to come perfectly in God's image. He is going to be God's true son. And at last, there is going to be a king who rules with perfect justice and righteousness. And yet the crown that he is going to receive from his people is going to be a crown of thorns. Now on the one hand, that is a, a degrading and a wicked object to, to place on the head of God's eternal king, and yet how fitting. A crown of thorns. Jesus wears this crown as he receives the condemnation that his people deserved so that it might no longer keep them out of his kingdom. Sin will not stop this kingdom. Punishment for sin should be the undoing of every single one of us. 
And yet it is also the beauty of the king who carries the scars of condemnation for the people that he has freed. Friends, as we look at the cross, sin cannot stop this kingdom from coming. So death can't stop it, sin can't stop it, and then here in verse uh, 16, God completes it. Time will not stop this kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Time has this incredible ability to weaken and take away the things that we are considered to be most precious to us. And perhaps for that reason, we struggle to think of a king or a kingdom that's, that's not going to be impacted by change, the change of time. In fact, the effects of time even corrode away our hope. Many who have been waiting for this kingdom have struggled to believe that it will ever come. Many of us have felt that way. And yet at no point in history has time caused God to deviate from his plan or to change his promises. Today, right now, at this minute, a physical descendant of David sits on the throne of heaven. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, his reign has begun. And in the last 2,000 years since the cross, His life-transforming reign has extended to the hearts of millions. Time has not squashed this kingdom. It is only increasing. And so whatever changes happen from now until eternity, this is certain. God will have a people, and David's offspring, Jesus, will be on the throne. He's already there. Death can't stop it. Sin won't stop it. Time cannot stop it. It is gloriously inevitable. God's kingdom will come. And it has been these promises which have helped God's people keep perspective for generations. It has been these promises which have kept God's people singing when there has been no earthly reason to rejoice. Because at every point, they could rejoice that God is not done with his people. His kingdom will endure. His true king will reign forever, and he does. This is God's perspective on the world. This is what God has been doing. And in light of this, Doesn't it seem so vain to plan anything apart from what God is doing? And I'm sure Nathan and David felt that as they heard this from the Lord. But God hasn't made these promises to shame them, but to blow their minds in wonder at what is happening. And David, he leads us in response here. He gives us a a prayerful perspective. Remember how uh, Act 1 began in the heights of the palace? The curtain lifts on Act 2, and King David goes to sit before the Lord in the tabernacle. You can see it, just that journey straight down to where God is, the humility, the change, the shift in his perspective. 
And so, as I said, he leads us in response here. And what's David's response? How can he process all of these glorious things? Well, he is speechless at God's sovereign plan. Look at verses 18 to 22. He is utterly speechless at God's amazing plan. Verse 20, what more can David say to you? Sovereign Lord, what can I say in front of all of these things? God's promise has humbled him to a place of worship. Five times here, he calls God sovereign Lord, and he repeatedly calls himself God's servant. The shift has happened. Perspective has come. David cannot help but marvel of, of all that God has done in his life so far and all that God has revealed that he is going to do. And all of it, verse 21, is for the sake of his word and according to his will. God is the architect. He's the project manager. He is making it happen. I once stayed at a friend's house uh, and, uh, for a birthday party and a, and a few years before their house had burned down and his parents were able to, to redesign the house as they had wanted to. And so they were taking us on a tour of the house and uh, telling me kind of how they, what they decided and how they built it. And uh, it was hard not to be just impressed. It was really cool. There's a wine cellar and everything. It was great. They turned their vision into a reality. And yet how much more stunned must David be hearing what God has conceived of and what he has achieved so far. It's more than a wine cellar. It is a kingdom that is going to cover the entire world. God has shown David what his kingdom is going to look like when it is fully formed. And so David declares, verse 22, there is no God like God. He says, we've heard it with our ears. And yet, this evening, we can say there is no God like our God because we've seen it with our eyes. God has kept his word and he has come in Christ to achieve his plan by serving us. God has come. The kingdom has come near, as you were thinking about in your morning services. God's kingdom is near. And so with David, let us dwell on this until there are no words left. God is working his sovereign plan in David's life, through David's line, and in our lives. There are no words. David continues his response in verses 23 and 24 by being moved. He can't help but be moved by God's covenant love for his people. It's kind of like it jolts, the passage jolts. His mind gets stuck on this point. How is it that God has committed himself to a people so fully? Because he says not only has God saved them out of slavery, he has saved them for himself. David is like a, the husband who has failed so often and whose spouse continually uh, forgives, but who doesn't just continually forgive, who dotes on them. And David just cannot help but ask why. Why us, God? We're such a weak people, so unimpressive. Why us? And the answer comes because that is the nature of his love he says you God have established your people Israel as your own forever and you Lord have become their God friends what kind of love are we dealing with here 
It is a love that if we dwell in it as David does, it will move us on the deepest level that God has so permanently committed himself to us. And this is a love that can orientate our whole world. It can be this perspective by which we see all other things. David has been speechless at God's sovereign plan. He has been moved by God's unbelievable covenant love. And so what does he do? He prays for God's promises to pass. The result of all of this, all that David has seen, comes in one humble prayer. Do as you've promised, so that your name will be great. And that's what we've got to do. As we've heard God's promises, if we come to his presence with David, we, we bring our plans and we humbly pray, Lord, do as you have promised. This is a, a significant time of change for you above our church. And so if we, if we hear what God is saying here, it is a time where the whole church, leadership, everyone, needs to be drawn into God's promises and to come prayerfully into his presence and to pray, do as you have promised here so that your name will be great. Let us not be sidetracked by what the world finds impressive, by reputation and living up to a name and whatever else it might be. Lord, build your kingdom here and across the world through us so that your name might be great. Let's be humbled and to seek God's promises and his presence. And let us do that for our lives individually with the constructions that we build to make ourselves impressive before one another and before God. And let us pray, do as you have promised. God, let us be okay with being unimpressive. Recipients of your grace, people who know we, we fail and we, we need your grace. So that anybody who comes through these doors, anybody who meets you as you are church beyond this building can say, this is where God is. This is where God is working. These people know that they're weak and they rejoice in it because they have a God who is impressive, a God whose kingdom is coming, a God who is worthy of all praise. Let us pray, God, do as you have promised so that your name, your name might be great. Friends, there is a final perspective here. Let me take us to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 and 16. And it points us forward. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. Friends, one day we will no longer be looking with Abraham to the heavens in hope. But we will be looking to 
the earth where the kingdom of God's son will be all that we can see in every nation, in every part of the world in which we live. It is inevitable and we will worship. We will worship the one who has kept his promises. God is a covenant-keeping God. Let us not be led by what the world thinks is impressive. Let us humble ourselves and do what he is doing. Be led what he, by what he is doing. Let all that we do be prayerfully shaped by this glorious perspective. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts can't help but be humbled before you. This is what you are doing in your world. It is what you have achieved and what will fully finally come. And Lord, we want to be a part of it. Lord, let us not have a hang-up in our hearts to be impressive by the world's standards. Lord, let us follow you. Let us long to see this kingdom come in our lives, in this church. Come in power, Lord, we pray. Let us receive your grace. Let us receive your freedom from trying to be impressive. And let us worship you. Father, let us pray for anybody this evening who just is struggling to believe your covenant promises. Lord, to believe that this kingdom will finally come. Lord, I pray, give them eyes to see what you have done and what you are doing. And Lord, for anyone here this evening who who doesn't yet know you, Lord, I pray that they will have seen you in these things. And Lord, that they would see you here present in this place. Lord, in your body, this church here. And would they marvel and wonder at what you are doing. May they join you in this kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.